Welcome to the Burnout Recovery Podcast, a guiding resource dedicated to healthcare professionals on their journey to overcoming burnout. Spearheaded by Dr. Joe Braid, a certified professional coach and rehabilitation physician. This podcast offers practical strategies through expert interviews and personal resilience stories, providing invaluable tools for navigating professional challenges while prioritizing well-being. Regardless of your role in healthcare, this podcast acknowledges the toll of your work on your overall health and is committed to supporting your recovery from burnout and fostering a fulfilling, sustainable career. So, if you're ready to begin a transformative journey, join us for each new episode. Together, we'll navigate challenges, celebrate successes, and build a supportive community of healthcare professionals. You are listening to the Burnout Recovery Podcast, Episode 63. Happy New Year to you. I am delighted to be back behind my microphone for these weekly podcast episodes. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing Dr. Cheryl Martin to your ears. Cheryl is a wonderful woman originally from Scotland, now living in Australia with a passion for clinician well-being and the humans in healthcare. Cheryl is focused on the effective physician executive, and she will talk more about her global journey in this area. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you my upcoming workshop, Find and Align Your Values. It will be an interactive workshop over Zoom where you will leave knowing your values in 2024 and ways to integrate them into your everyday. So making decisions is easier and you will be clear on what matters to you. Check out more details and register for the workshop on my website at drjoebraid.com forward slash values. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Joe. It's, no, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, Happy New Year. It's really lovely to be talking to you again. Thank you so much. Um, So I um, had the pleasure of meeting Cheryl in Sydney um, a number of months back at one of the big workshops that we both went to, which was excellent. And um, thank you, Cheryl, for inviting me onto your podcast a while earlier as well. Um, Cheryl is a real dynamo in life and um, does lots of exciting things in her life from trail running to adding an MBA onto a clinical load already. So Cheryl, why don't you tell us in your words um, a little about your backstory of how you got to where you are today um, and and why you are choosing this avenue of of what life looks like now. Great. Thanks, Jill. Uh, I just want to also say that we should link that conversation we had on my podcast because it was very well received. Uh, and I well, consider you a dynamo too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Um, it's quite hard to you know, summarize uh, you know, 20 plus years of a, of a career, isn't it? Um, and hopefully there is another 20 plus uh, to go. Mm. I... I actually, listening to you on a previous podcast, I think it was the Balanced Medics podcast, I think there's a lot of alignment in our early journey. Uh, we were both NHS uh, trained doctors initially. I did my medical training in Glasgow, um, but I had done most of my emergency specialist training here in Australia. I've been a little obsessed with Australia since I've been quite young. I have family who are uh, now here and, and cousins who were born here in Melbourne. And yes, I um, did do emergency training and I chose to do that specialist training here in Australia, I think, because 
at a time, it was the time of modernizing medical careers. And I think many of us affectionately called it mucking up medical careers. And I had done a year in Australia just prior to that. So I was one of the lost tribe. And, you know, I think it was quite important for me at that point, uh, just post internship, I'd done six months of emergency to really take an opportunity to see what else was out there. I I really was quite determined that I was going to go um, to Australia. And I really loved that year that I, I had. Um, I came back and, and, you know, tried to, to settle, but, but didn't do too well. And, uh, really just said, well, in Australia, in Australia. And I think I was <laughs> drawn to the kind of inherent, uh, flexibility of the ASIM training pathway at that time mm. relative to, to UK. And I, you know, I think that has probably changed and evolved over the years, but I liked the idea that I could move around, I could really choose my own adventure. And I think the things that are important to me are autonomy and a bit of creative license and, Mm. you know, being able to to choose my journey. And I think that's probably um, really persisted through the past um, two decades. And it probably goes some way to explain why I have gone off piste at times. Sure, sure. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I guess we probably moved over to Oz at similar, certainly stages in our careers and, um, yeah, both pursued our specialist training in different specialties over here as well. Yeah, great. And I think both had a, the other thing I, when I was listening to you, you know, talking about your interest and musculoskeletal medicine, your rehabilitation medicine, I, you did Pilates training, I have been I did an intercalated degree in sports and exercise medicine. And, you know, even at that point was really mm. interested in the application of exercise prescription, you know, beyond really the elite athlete into medical conditions. And um, that year was a really good opportunity to explore that. And I think, well, you did teacher training in Pilates. I did teacher training in yoga and, and I've really had an interest in, uh, you know, the kind of broader uh and, and I think, you know, even at that time, I remember writing an, uh, an article that was printed in the, the BMJ or the sports, I think it was the sports version of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was kind of bemoaning the fact that our intercalated in sports medicine was kind of seen as inferior to maybe my colleagues studying cardiovascular medicine and cancer studies and neurovascular mm. um medicine and, and neuroscience. And we were all part of a clinical medicine intercalated degree uh, that had the same core tenets, you know, the statistics, the epidemiology. And um, I think that we were kind of seen as the slackers. <laughs> and I was really bemoaning that fact in, in terms mm. of the robustness of the science, you know, supporting, um, you know, the the kind of applications of, of sports and exercise medicine more generally. Yeah, great. Yeah. So has that taken you to other places then either within your clinical career or outside of your clinical career? Yeah, so I think, you know, in many ways, when I did come to Australia, I followed a more traditional path then of doing my specialist fellowship training, Mm -hmm. uh, which, which I did thoroughly enjoy. But you know, I think we have spoken about this and this is the burnout recovery podcast. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I did peter out. Um, yeah. I, you know, I did experience a, a, a period of career burnout, which, you know, I now actually see as 
probably quite pivotal and and really important part of my ongoing professional development. Hmm. I was quite disappointed to get to what I thought would be the the pinnacle of my professional career, getting my emergency specialist fellowship and Mm -hmm. really felt that I'd limped towards the top of that. I, uh, you know, I'm a keen mountain runner and, you know, I think I've spoken about this a couple of times. I, you know, when I'm, I'm going to tackle a mountain on the run, I would start quite conservatively. I'd really try to hold it together in the middle piece and really bring it home hard. Um, I think I started up Mount Faisham at full pelt and I petered out, um, probably, you know, just beyond the halfway point up the mountain mm. and really limped. And then, you know, I, I love a, a summit view. I really couldn't see um, much to really be... <laughs> excited about which I think was really disappointing for me at the time um and so I didn't actually go straight into a consultant role and this would have been nearly 10 years ago now Mm -hmm. and really took the opportunity to to do some other things I remember you know telling a colleague that I so there's a couple of things that stand out around that time Mm. I said that I didn't want to rush into a a consultant job. I was told that's what I should do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to do other things, um, both inside medicine and outside medicine. And I I think I was kind of met with, why would you want to do that? Mm. And I think the other, you know, bit that, again, I've spoken about before, just prior to that, when I was struggling, I sought to reduce my hours and go part-time. And I remember saying to you know, a nameless face on a phone that somebody had never met. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's probably a bit of burnout. And um, I, uh, I was told, um, you know, don't use that term. It has certain connotations. And I remember being very d- disappointed at the time. And I think you and I know that conversation hopefully has evolved over mm-hmm. 10 years. And, and that, you know, I'm hopeful that that would not be the case today. I can't say for sure it wouldn't. Sure, um, yeah. But I, I remember, you know, I actually think it was quite encouraging for me because I remember just saying quite firmly, well, it is what it is. And, you know, I carried on um, down the path I had planned to. And I think that's probably influenced a lot of, you know, where my career has gone subsequently. So I did take time out. Um, I did do some sports and exercise medicine. I did my yoga teacher training that I talked about for uh, 18 years. Um, You know, I think, which, you know, we both know and you're a coach um, and we both know Sheree Johnson, another coach and many other coaches. And I think that core, the kind of intra and interpersonal skills, I think is what Sheree calls it. But, you know, I had a lot of work to do. And I think that many of your guests on this podcast will probably have spoken about that work. Mm. I you know, in terms of just what what was important to me, what, you know, setting boundaries, a bit about ego and identity, you know, it was very much um, wrapped up in in my career and my identity Mm. as an emergency doctor. And, you know, I I really had a a period of uh, work to do. But I think about that time, I also began to look more broadly at the system and and the culture that we're operating in. Mm. And I had started to present um, at a few non-mainstream conferences. So the Australian Lifestyle Medicine Conference, and I think there was another, um, again, slightly off-piece conference that I spoke Mm. about on Physician Heal Thyself, you know, so that very much the 
the individual work, um, but became quite aware that there were other people around the world really looking at the the more broader um, environment that we're working in. And so I always remember reading the uh, Professor T.H. Anafel and uh, Dr. John Noseworthy's paper in 2017 on, I think it was nine organizational strategies. It was a Mayo Clinic hmm. uh, publication and, you know, really spoke about the work that they'd been doing for a couple of decades at that point, um, merging clinician burnout and also looking at, you know, kind of aggregate data and, and looking at what worked. Um, and a lot of that was looking at the broader systems, hmm. um, so a lot of the administrative burdens and bureaucracy, but also creating community um, and also leadership and particularly at work unit levels. So I think mm. that all became very interesting to me and I went down a rabbit hole of reading a lot of that literature um, and I think more recently you know that I have then followed a, a lot of the, the I suppose the, the pockets of really great work that have been happening um, around the world um, and more locally and yourself included in that. Um, went to, did the Stanford Wellbeing Directors course a couple of years ago yes. and then went to Stanford last year to do the Chief Wellness Officer course. It was mm. great to, oh, the year before last, sorry. Um, we are now in 2024. Yeah, just, yes, yeah. And being very encouraged about the kind of growing momentum for really thinking differently here. And I, I think that, again, has probably driven my decision to do an MBA. I needed a bigger I, I think I needed more skills I needed a bigger toolbox and mm -hmm. I needed a broader lens um, I think a lot of this work is not so much the well-being piece it's more looking at you know it's organizational leadership it's change management it's really thinking a bit differently and and looking outside ourselves because I think you know what you know, the, the the classic you know what uh, has what brings you to a place is not enough to take you to the next place mm -hmm, yeah. the same set of skills and i think we're facing some some really you know significant challenges so that yeah. that is a long waffle but i i think you know I, I mentioned the work that i did around values i think autonomy um lifelong learning creative agency those are the things that and service and contribution i think those mm. would be my core values and i think that's probably helped me um, think about what I want to do going forward um, in my medical career. You know, and yeah. I think for me, it's become more than just a professional mission. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing all of that, Cheryl. Some great analogies there. And I could hear your values popping up at different points that were quite pivotal, I guess, in your um, career, like that pause after getting your specialist qualification and not following the herd and just choosing choosing your way that was working that was where you wanted to step to next at that point. I just wanted to say though, I I you know I think I was in a position of privilege to make that decision. You need mm -hmm. you can't you know I I think you need support. You need a support network behind you to make those calls. And you know I, I'm very grateful for people that. <laughs> <laughs> that held me up when you know that I wouldn't say that that wasn't one of the most challenging parts of my career yeah right yeah, yeah. these these moments are defining are they not <laughs> they are yeah absolutely yeah wow and so you're halfway through your MBA now which is this global group of people and you're you're meeting up and training in different parts of the world 
Yeah, so it has been wonderful. Mm. Um, I did do a bit of research and I spoke to, you know, I'd known a number. It's kind of interesting. Once you start looking, um, you find a number of colleagues who have done um, MBA programs. Mm. You know, I have the, 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 somebody asked me this just very recently and I've been asked it a lot. Why, why am I doing an MBA? But I think it was an American colleague, actually. It was Andrea. And uh, she oh, was yeah. just saying, you know, mm. it's a common, the common thing for doctors to do. And I didn't, feel it I mean I, I certainly now can think of a lot of doctors who have MBAs but I think perhaps in America it is more common um it, you know I did mention my intention to a few people and they kind of looked at me blankly like why would you want to do that and um I remember on the creative careers in medicine platform I did post a question a couple of I think it was over two years ago mm-hmm. and I, I think I got no replies <laughs> okay I'm thinking about doing this but I, I know that Amandeep has done an MBA in Sydney um mm-hmm. but uh the you know in terms of how I approached it I did do a bit of research and I've ended up I stumbled I think on what has been a very good model for me because mm-hmm. there are many different ways to do this you can do it online you can do it remotely um mine's is a bit unique so I, I wanted to do an ember um and i also wanted a global experience and so just to uh, clarify an ember is MBA. So executive MBA. Oh, executive mba thanks yeah and i wanted to be able to fit it around you know my my clinical commitments and other commitments too mm. Mm. so they're this the way I'm doing. It, I'm doing an MBA at Melbourne Business School. It's what they call their SEMBA program. So, and a senior executive MBA group. So, it is, uh, you know, an older cohort who mm-hmm. have you know ten to fifteen to twenty plus years in their professional practice. Mm. So, I am forty four, and I am just below the mean. Um, so, about the average, there is twenty nine of us, and our ages range from thirty five to. Um, you know, mid to late fifties, which has been really great. And we are very diverse in terms of our professional experience, our um, backgrounds, our, you know, stage and and life experience. Mm. Um, It's interestingly not the sample that I would see representative in senior leaderships um, here in Australia right now. It's what we should aspire to, I reckon. Um, But, but, but I think they've done a very good job. And, you know, I think my, when I went for my interview, the program director was, you know, very specific about the uh, the fact that yes, we're going to give you some great learning opportunities, but the real learning opportunities are within the group and what you can learn mm. from each other. So it's mm. kind of, I know that we both really value our peer networks, but it's kind of like getting a, a web of peer mentors, you know, immediately available to you that you have you know, the opportunity to learn from and build relationships with. And I think wow. that's been the most valuable part for me. Um, we do, so it's kind of boot camp style. So it's residential blocks of nine days. Uh, so there's 10 of those over 18 months mm. where we live and uh, study and sleep and sit exams um, together. Yeah. And there are three global blocks. So we went to wow. India last year, which was uh, phenomenal. Um, we'll go to Europe and the US in 2024. Yeah. Um, so exciting. Well, all the best with the remainder of your MBA. And I can't wait to hear about what next steps that might um, take you to, I guess, especially from that network that you've got there and your clinical background and 
um, you know, your values and passions already in life um, to see where that combination might take you to. And, you know, if anybody is listening and, mm. you know, in, intrigued about the, the MBE pathway, certainly my experience is just one, but, you know, very happy to, to talk to you or put you in touch with uh, a number of other doctors who have, you know, chosen um, to do an MBE. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, I wanted to switch back more into Australian medical training now. I I understand you're the chair on the um, Australian College of Emer Emergency Medicine Wellbeing Committee, and there's been a really significant change to um, allowances in the training program um, just made recently. Do you want to share with the listeners a little bit more about what that has been and how that came about, please, Cheryl? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I think there's... I might take you back to that point where I was kind of at my peak struggle uh, back in 2014. And I actually attended our ASM at that point, our annual scientific meeting. And day three was entirely devoted to well-being activities uh, for the very first time. And there was I sitting, you know, kind of a bit broken, um, really seeing the irony in this. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it was, I think, an acknowledgement that, wait a minute, we we might have a problem here and this might be important. And, you know, this was welcomed and we had just employed the fabulous Andrea Johnson as head of people and culture at that point. And I think my memory of those sessions where they were very much focused on us as individuals, there was definitely some mindfulness, some positive psychology. Um, there was maybe one session on how to seek help um, and, and, you know, barriers to doing that, which was great. Mm. But, you know, it's really been great to see the evolution of that network over time. So we, we formed the, the ACE and Wellbeing Network and started having Wellbeing Champions a couple of years ago. And I've been mm. a state champion for a couple of years, but um, and had the Wellbeing Awards. There's, you know, various um, good pockets of great practice that have been um, incorporated. And, you know, there's a number of other colleges doing um, some excellent work as well. I think the College of Anistas, Franz Cog definitely come to mind mm. as well. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I really welcome the fact that the just last year, and it was Andrew Tag, Dr. Andrew Tag, and um, Dr. Shul Cole who really advocated to have a more formal well-being executive um, committee, which was fantastic. That was founded last year, and it was really, um, you know, it's an, going to hopefully be an opportunity to really bring this to look at the, the the wider systems and structures to develop some toolkits of of great practice for wellbeing directors. You know, we, we have a number of aspirations. I think the thing is it's it is a lot of work. It is, you know, pro bono, it's part of um, mm. you know, what we do as volunteers to the college. And I'm I'm quite aware, I think all of us are aware that there is a lot of work to do. But have it there's a team of rock stars now on that executive committee. So I'm really excited for what we might do mm. next year. But you mentioned a couple of the great things that mm. we're doing and um I think the interrupted uh well-being uh sort of well-being interruption to training is yes. a really a good example of you know something that we, many colleges could replicate so I think um, it's and correct me if I'm wrong I've, I've read this very recently but I think it's three months out of program for for well-being yeah. really for a well-being mm -hmm. reason that that you don't actually have to explain that can be signed off for a trainee mm -hmm. and that can be actually I think there's two of those throughout the training program but they can be united in yeah. a six months 
I think, though, the other, I mean, I think it's great that we have it. And I think it's great that it's being taken up. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that a lot of people don't know about it. So yeah, <laughs> even right. within our college, so it's great okay. to talk about it. Thank you to talk about it, definitely. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think I'm also concerned that that we've created a training program where people feel that they, you know, where our trainees feel they actually need to step off in order to be able to keep going. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and you know, my idea and my ideal is that this is sustainable over time. And we have a recent iteration, we've had three iterations now of our workforce sustainability survey. And, you know, there are some concerning findings there. Um, It's a small cohort. You've always got a problem when you, when you have surveys in terms of your response rate. So I think Mm. we've got less than um, 20% um, replies Mm. to that. And, you know, you're then left asking, is this the worst case scenario um, or is this tip of the iceberg? And and I'm not sure. Um, But I do see, you know, worrying trends in terms of our burnout and in terms of intent to leave practice. And, you know, we know that clinicians Mm. with burnout are more likely to reduce their hours or leave their practice. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, all of those numbers are going up. Yes. So I, th- that said, on a positive note, um, we did do a lot of work, um, or the, I'm saying we, but that was not me, but um, ASIM did do a lot of work around um, particularly bullying um, and harassment um, after uh, a, a, an inquiry a couple of years ago. And that was something that a lot of energy and intention was put into. Mm-hmm. Um, and those numbers have improved. Um, so those are the bits That's that good. have improved slightly. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's encouraging to see where you do direct your resources, your attention, your energy, you mm-hmm. can um, make impact. And I think there are so many things that we can do. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think that there's a really great group um, involved and we're hoping to collaborate across colleges because I know there's lots of our colleagues in many of the other um, specialties thinking likewise I'm thinking um, RACP as well. Sure absolutely yeah it's it's funny isn't it it's that siloed approach to medicine that we have um, with all our different specialties and yet the humans within maybe suffering in in similar ways so yeah how can we have similar offerings to all across the different specialties that we choose to go into yeah um no but it, i you know i mean i commend asim for taking this seriously mm. and, and supporting us so uh, i think we're all quite invested great great yeah I wanted to ask you a bit about schwartz rounds which um as i understand are um, a space for uh, any any clinician or any worker in a health service to come together for a facilitated um, uh, sort of not exactly a debrief, but a facilitated um, uh, processing of emotions. Maybe space. I'm I'm new to this. I've never been a part of a Schwartz round so far. However, um, we are starting with a pilot in Bathurst Health Service, and I've popped my hand up to be involved with that. So I've got a bit more learning to do about that, but I think you're you're somebody who has been a facilitator and trained up with Schwartz um, before. Tell us a bit more about, um, you know, what happens in a Schwartz round and what the benefit can be for the organisation who um, involves that for their staff. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I commend uh, Bathurst for uh 
really committing to invest and it is an investment in an initiative like Sports Round. Mm. I hadn't heard of Sports Rounds, I have to admit, uh, prior to uh, a couple of years ago when I did facilitator training in the Royal Hobart Hospital. So they mm-hmm. now have um, a really flourishing program. And that was a lot of work uh, to get the business case over the line from um, my colleagues, uh, Kirsten Gibson and Becky Clark. Um, so we're head in quality and safety and our um, nurse wellbeing director, who um, really it took a whole team effort to, to, to get that um, business case and investment. And I did also put my hand up to be a facilitator and myself and uh, Claire Bamsden, who is our head of Allied Health and um, a clinical psychologist, also did the training as well as one of our palliative care um, physicians, hmm. um, Robin and Thomas. And we uh, we held four the year that I, before I left um, my post last year, mm-hmm. and they were very successful and that program is still going. And so the, the kind of background to Schwartzhounds um, it was a uh, healthcare lawyer, um, Ken Schwartz, who uh, set up this um, with his family, really in his memory. He um, very tragically died of lung cancer um, at a very young age. And, you know, a lot of uh, part of his legacy is that he wanted a space for, you know, his his carers, his, the healthcare um, community and staff who looked after him to to really... And I mean, it, it does speak to the piece about self-compassion, but really a space for them to connect and and share stories. And um, I, I think that centre of self-compassion is is very much embedded in the Schwartz round uh, theory and practice. And so you'll learn a bit more about that as you go through facility training. And it's a very supportive community. And now in Australia and New Zealand, there's quite a lot of uh, healthcare hospitals and organizations who've um, been on board so you've got an opportunity to network there mm. um i you know I, just kind of taking a step back more generally i've spoken about things that that work well and we know that creating opportunities to build community um is powerful mm. and you know i think with covid and uh, hybrid working and um you know part-time and flexible options which are also important as well but but that those opportunities and particularly in busy time per environments um, mm. you know particularly thinking of a lot of the work that w- that we know do now when we step up even in teams it can feel quite lonely um, mm. and there aren't many opportunities for genuine connection and reflection and to be able to do that uh, across silos and and as part of the whole team remembering that you know why we're here is to look after patients i think mm. the schwartz rounds is a very good uh, example of that um and uh, you know you the, the kind of format is that you'll have a couple of people share stories you'll have mm. a theme or topic uh, the one that i facilitated was managing uncertainty um or navigating right. uncertainty which was yeah. was really gritty and great topic i think we started off with some quite positive um you know i think we wanted to ease into uh the 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 kind of more you know challenging and difficult conversations Mm. um and you know really powerful examples of other people's experience of being part of the healthcare team and you know i think when you hear 
you know, one of the examples when I was doing the the actual training, um, mm. you're thinking about a lot of uh, one of the hospital porters had been on the, the panel and was, you know, a lot of my patients will share things with the porters that they will not share with uh, with us. And, um, you know, they are privy to a lot of these conversations. And really to hear that is 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 very powerful, but also the impact. Um, and so, you know, the story of transporting patients around the hospital, but also that final journey when, you know, they, they are sometimes transferring patients to the morgue. And that might be a patient that they have developed a relationship with mm-hmm. and a rapport with and not really had a space or an outlet to, to, to talk about that. And I think that it makes you mindful of all the people that contribute to the, the patient care and how important it is that we are each other's eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I'd like to think we do this reasonably well in, in, in emergency medicine. It has to be a, a flatter hierarchy by the nature of the environment. It is risky business at times. We really rely on everybody's eyes and ears, um, mm. including patients. Um, but, you know, I think that it, it's a really good platform for being yeah. able to do that. And there's a wee yeah. bit of research happening as well. So hopefully um, we'll have some nice evidence base to support more investment because often that's what's needed. So I'm yeah. really keen to hear um, yeah. your experiences. I think your coaching and facilitation and teacher um, roles will naturally lend itself to the facilitator role. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Cheryl. You know, I've got to tell you a little story. I have just come back from the UK and France traveling with my family and we're on the train from Cambridge to London sitting next to because there's five of us I was on my own and the other four were in the other sitting next to the other table yeah and I I had these two Italian guys sit down next to me and I ended up chatting to them they were both porters at Addenbrooke's Hospital Cambridge which I think has an absolutely huge floor plan and huge levels and I couldn't help but sort of interview them and have quite an interesting chat with them on that 45-minute train journey through to London. Um, And, yeah, they mentioned going to the morgue as one of their least favourite jobs for sure. Um, They mentioned there's 100 porters in Attenbrooks and their community is really pretty tight. Um, And one guy was getting asked to be promoted and again and again he said no. I like this job as it is, and I don't want to take on managerial roles yeah. and uh, four on, four off, or whatever their roster was. And there was some kind of life balance that they'd chosen to have at around the age 50 to do this physical job with a lot of connection with families and patients. And um, I think that's great that you mentioned that that was in one of the training things. And I just happened to chat to these guys for like the whole time that I was on the train and hear about their stories and their experience of current life in the NHS. I think it's powerful to have medical students on the panel as well. Um, okay. We've had a few. I, I think it, the the session that I facilitated to get the get the the whole um, experience through the the eyes of a medical student is also mm. powerful. Yeah, great. Or or one of the nursing students. We've had both and I learn every time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Great. Um, it's a big question, Cheryl. Um, what do you think are some of the priorities in healthcare in Australia in 2024 as we cruise into this new year? What comes to mind for you is I, I think you have this this sort of maybe eagle-like view on 
on what's going on here with different like states that you work in and um and a wide community that you're involved in around Australia what comes to mind for you yeah well there's a number it's a small question isn't it <laughs> um, I mean I think my lens is always going to be on our workforce um and you know for I suppose that's where I'm putting more uh, energy and uh, attention um I think I'm worried about you know particularly our um general practice workforce and the predicted for uh, shortfalls I think mm. it's nearly 10,000 um by year 2031 um and I think that's you know something that 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 needs to we need to be really have that up front and center um you know I think that's in the context of a, a rapidly aging um population and you know, working as an emergency physician, um, you know, I think historically it's not been that we, it, it's not patients that who, sh who should see their GP that historically have been contributing to the access block um, that we mm. see in hospitals. A lot of that is, you know, patients who are already admitted to the system, we call it a logjam, um, but who are um, waiting maybe for um, community care and social care. But, you know, I think when you see the collapse of the whole system, then you then get a lot more patients who who have to come. And, you know, I, 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 I found it quite hard even as a clinician with family members to navigate the healthcare system. And we have a bit of knowledge. And I think that um, it's kind of frightening to see. And, and look, I think we'll caveat with we are very fortunate here in Australia. I do think in general um, that we have a great healthcare system, but I think mm. that we can do um, so much better. And, you know, I think we are well aware of um, the challenges we're facing. And I'm seeing some really, you know, encouraging um, work that is being done. Um, so our aging population, and I think also the, I've got a number of colleagues who are quite heavily invested, and I think this is where the, we'll, we'll come on to the beyond the quadruple aim to the quintuple aim when we're oh, thinking okay. about uh, sustainability and climate change and mm. the impact that has on health. Yeah. Um, and we know that it, you know, again, will um, inappropriately or disproportionately affect the people who are marginalised and um, who who will need to access emergency care. It's always mm. disproportionate, the inequity that we see in health. Um, those inequities are widening all the time. And so I, I think uh, I'll have to call out uh, a few people, Kimberly Humphrey, Dr. Kimberly Humphrey, who was on my podcast, and uh, Dr. Simon Judkins, I think they have started. So ASIM have also founded a sustainability executive um, mm. and climate health. And I think they are seeing this again, you know, and working in combination with a number of great colleagues um, as one of the, the, the big challenges. We had a leadership summit in ASIM, I think, in September this year, and I was showing the graphs in terms of our aging population and and um, the tsunami of patients that uh, and the predicted, um, you know, how that will have the knock-on effect of of impact on our healthcare services mm. um, and social care services. And it is really quite terrifying. Um, and I think when I saw that with our workforce sustainability and, and the number of people retiring and <laughs> that was, um, you know, th these are big challenges. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the thing that will be interesting to discuss, and I don't really have numbers or an idea around this, but um, I think um, myself and Amandeep have discussed this a few times in terms of 
you know, workforce sustainability and, uh, you know, the, the, the trends in work. Um, I think you and I celebrate the, you know, portfolio careers, the inherent part-time and flexible mm-hmm. um, working options. I think they are going to be very important. Um, I think I've just inter- interviewed uh, Dr. George Iskander and team at North Metro and they have this wonderful, and I'm going to call this out because I think a lot of people were unaware and, and are increasingly become aware mm-hmm. of the JMO manifesto where they have, you know, taken a 25% deficit in their junior medical rosters um, and a 5 million spend on locums and really listened to their junior staff and uh, given opportunities for part-time and flexible working for mm. Uh, for paid overtime and for leave um, that is guaranteed. Um, I think there's a, we've, we spoke a bit before we recorded about the, the kind of <laughs> toxic social media platform, but there's quite mm. an interesting thread um, going on at the moment with some NHS um, executives really highlighting a, a young trainee's experience of not being able to book uh, some leave for a big family holiday. And I think this has been going on for months and the, mm-hmm. the holiday is planned for 2024 and um, has now just given up because it's all too stressful um, because it, you know, being kind of thrown from pillar to post mm. and nobody's really taken accountability. It's not guaranteed. It's all too much. I'm yeah. just going to I'm not going to have my holiday. And, you know, they kind of, you know, that this, the outflow of this is, well, surely we can do this better. And mm-hmm. I think the good thing about the GMO manifesto is they've really shown that they can. Um, and the big learning from that was it didn't cost a whole heap of money. And a lot mm-hmm. of it's been very basic things and listening and agency of, um, the junior medical cohort and doctors in training and i mean i actually don't like the term junior um because <laughs> they, these are people who've been studying yeah. and working for you know a long time but, sure. but um yeah. the it's really encouraging to listen to the armo president and the chief registrar they are talking about their role and making this happen and so right. those are the kind of blueprints that we really want to share yeah um, Fantastic. Oh, well, I look forward to listening to that one as well. Sounds like a great podcast episode coming up. Yeah. Great. Um, I know you've got a collaboration with the Medical Benevolent Association of New South Wales as well. Um, yeah. How? Tell me a bit more about sort of how that rolled out and, and how your engagement is with them, please. Sure. Um, so again, I didn't know much about the Medical Benevolent Association of New South Wales and ACT until I attended, like you, the Australasian Doctors Health Conference, uh, mm. which I think was quite a pivotal meeting. Uh, that was at the end of 2022. Yeah. And I met Louise Fallon, who's their executive officer. They had a booth there. And, you know, I, I, they had been, they've been founded for many, many years. Mm. And a lot of the work they do is aligned with, you know, many of the other doctors, health and support agencies now, um, mm-hmm. and they do work in collaboration. But a lot of that has historically been financial assistance to doctors in crisis, which I think mm-hmm. makes them a little bit unique. Um, but also, and I think increasingly, um, a lot of that is um, support, um, you know, particularly in in other crisis. So they have social workers like uh, Julia Quick, who was mm-hmm. on my podcast, yeah. um, who work not only with doctors, but also with families. Um, so they have a number of families after, you know, if a, a doctor has committed suicide and supporting mm-hmm. families. Um, mm-hmm. So the work is very important. Um, you know, I think the, 
the increase in demand for a lot of their services, like um, many of the aligned and affiliated organisations, you know, it's a reflection um, of the times. Um, they have done particular work with Lismore after the floods to go okay. in and support doctors. And, you know, I think increasingly uh, they are going into the preventative space. And I think that's maybe what I didn't mention about, you know, the big challenges facing healthcare. And I think mm. you and I, know that a lot of what we do well is sick care um, yes. and really you know we, we we want to be in a preventative um health space more generally mm. um so that's a lot of work that they are doing uh so i i did interview um dr sue Filoski, who is a surgeon in lismore supporting mm. my community and she's worked in collaboration with the mba of new south wales and act mm. and, but there's a number of other medical benevolent associations in other states that i have subsequently learned too um and you know, I, I, I think that I, I can recall at least one uh, instance this year where I've had to, you know, put a colleague of a colleague in, in, in touch. Mm. Um, and I'm certainly happy to link their website. Mm. And so the other thing that Louise, when she approached me, is they have offered me some sponsorship for the mm. podcast, mm. Um, which, you know, I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of time and money and uh, in these passion projects yeah. so that's been um helpful from my perspective as well mm -hmm. but i think also you know a big challenge that they're facing is is awareness um yeah and yeah. also donations so a yes. lot of this is yeah. a charitable organization and yeah. they rely on donations mm. yeah no good good to hear and and great to share their works that they do as well which is so important and australia wide um yeah really good yeah I think we're rounding out the podcast interview now. If there's anything else you want to add, um, please let me know. Otherwise, the final question I always ask uh, my guests is, what is one self-care tool you rarely miss? Oh, that's a good question. So I I think you've already mentioned my running, but I, it would probably be, I probably have to choose two. Um, <laughs> I think either a run or a date with my yoga mat. Um, mm -hmm. I yeah. love trail running uh i think for me it is a form of meeting me meditation but i think i also have a community of fellow runners and i think it's become really important that's the social connection piece for me um to be able to go out in the mountains and mm. run with my friends um so that's that's something that really uh fills me up um and you know i i really value the time that i spend out there mm. i um a regular yoga practitioner i think i will spend most you know i have my mat out most of the time and you know sometimes that's just five minutes with my leg up legs up the wall or, yeah. or a bit of breath work um mm. i you know i i love i don't know if you've ever read the joy of movement by kelly mcgonigal i only the start i haven't read the whole thing yet hmm She's got a passage in this where she describes her relationship with movement from a young age. And it really, really, it, you know, I, I think it encapsulated the way I feel. Um, I danced when I was younger. I've always, you know, I was always that person recruiting the boys and girls to come to the aerobics class, did aerobics teacher training. And, you know, I just, mm -hmm. I, um, I've always felt good, um, moving and, having said that i'm kind of aware that that's you know that is my thing and i can do that too much and i think what i value by my yoga practice because it's not just you know i know you and i both like pilates that's mm. the, the kind of more physical form the, the asana practice in yoga is the, the physical postures but mm. the 
the breath work, the relaxation, the meditation. So that more um, meditative thing, it really gets me to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my podcast is called The Mind Full Medic Podcast for a reason. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, and ironically on that, it's really quite hard to to stop, sit, be. Um, and I think that my yoga practice has been very important in help me, helping me kind of dial down mm-hmm. um, the, the relative hyperactivity part of me. Yes, yeah. <laughs> So oh, I think so these good. days I'm a bit more, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say integrated, um, if, if not balanced. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Well, thanks, Cheryl. There's so much that we've talked about in this episode today. I think the listen- our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Um, I hear a common thread of what could be a preventative approach rather than a treatment approach, um, step out and move, and also sit sit with either your thoughts or sit sit with your breath and take a moment there. So I hope for you as the listeners, there's a handful of takeaways you've got from this value-packed uh, interview with Cheryl Martin today. Um, Cheryl, where can my listeners find you, please? Thank you. And thank you, um, Joel, for all the work that you do. Um, I think this is a really valuable platform. Um, I think you, there's you know, this community and realizing that you're not alone. And I think that's what's helped me um, over the years, um, because actually it might feel like it at times, but you can only, you look to your left or your right and there's somebody going through something fairly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, where can you find me? I, I, so I do have, oh, that's exciting news. I actually do have a revised website now, um, which is quite easy so it's the mindfulmedicpodcast.com and that's uh, fool with two l's um talking about that ironic play not a spelling mm-hmm. mistake yes um, i'm also on linkedin and instagram um great and i have a buzzsprite page but if you go to the website you get all the links to the podcasts great thanks thank you very all- much oh cheryl thank you so much thanks for all the work that you do and um we will link all of your um places that people can find you in the show notes today um maybe as well as um some of the articles that we talked about as well i'll find them and pop them in there so people can see that if they'd like to too um really great connecting with you can't wait to see you again soon hopefully we'll get to see each other in march that would be good at creative careers you bet thanks so much thank you cheers bye Thanks for listening to this episode of the Burnout Recovery Podcast. If there's someone in your world who would also benefit from this, please share it with them. Remember, you are not alone and there is hope for a brighter, more fulfilling future. Let's continue this journey together one episode at a time. For more resources, including how to move from dread to delight, head to drjoebraid.com.